Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 20. We've been working through Luke for a couple years. We're to the last week of Jesus' life. We're to Tuesday of Passion Week. Uh, Last week we just saw Jesus uh, drive everyone out of the temple and those who sold and were making a business uh, out of the Passover. Uh, We saw Jesus drive them out. And not only that, Matthew said that the lame and the blind were coming in to the temple in which they normally wouldn't be allowed to come into, and they were being healed by Him. And we're told that He was teaching daily in the temple in verse 47 of chapter 19, and we see that in our text this morning, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who it is gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom from above as we look at this text Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to cut deep down into our hearts that you would make us more like you, that you would bring repentance and that we would uh, run to Christ for forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would be glorified, that we would tremble more before Christ, recognizing he deserves all of our submission to him. God, I ask that you would do your work in Christ's name. Amen. The text before us deals with those who struggled with the authority of Jesus Christ. As they saw the tables be flipped and chairs be pulled out from under people who sat in them and their coins being spilt, And as they saw Jesus having the audacity to let the blind and the lame come in to the temple in which they would have been uh, previously unclean, not allowed to come in, the question of the Jewish leadership is a question that we, our culture maybe wouldn't understand. In a pluralistic culture, nobody's really concerned too much with who has the authority to do what. 
Because what's preached is do what you want, do what's right for you. But as they're watching Christ do this, there's one main question. Who gave you the authority to do it? How dare you come into God's temple and do what you do? And as is always the temptation when we see the failure of the Jewish leadership in the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, it's easy to become the self-righteous, man, they're so evil. They're, the fact that they would reject and not see Christ's authority. It, it's easy for us to read these texts that way. But sinners saved by grace that still have remaining sin can struggle also with the same things that they struggled with. So if I asked you the question, how do you do with Jesus' authority in your life? If you had discernment from the Holy Spirit and you had light into your heart struggle, you would answer, I too struggle when I face Christ as Lord. It's easy to receive Christ as our Savior. We want to go to heaven. We want our sins forgiven. But it's hard when Christ, now as our professed Lord, starts to get up on our toes and rubber meets the road in our little everyday choices of our life. And yet Jesus already in Luke, for example, in chapter 9, verse 23, said things like this. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So obviously he didn't just merely have physical death in mind, but he assumed that those who would follow him would have to remember that they are not king or queen of their life. That there's a daily denying of yourself and your own life. He goes on to say, therefore, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words as they encroach up on you, he says, I will be ashamed. The Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the angels. And so we've seen through Luke that Christ, to his followers, says that if you want to follow me, you need to follow me, yes, as Savior, but also as Lord. I was trying to think of examples, just how to illustrate how I've seen this in my life and in others' lives. Uh, there was one time when I was asked to do a wedding 
for someone out of town. And, and I said that I would maybe do it, but that I'd want to do the premarital counseling if I was going to perform the wedding. And I was concerned that the groom-to-be may not be a believer. And uh, so as uh, I met with the couple and was sharing the gospel, it seemed like he was hanging on my every word, that he was leaning in to the gospel. And I, I, I got to the end of sharing the gospel with him over the course of about an hour, and I asked him, I said, do you want to follow Christ? Do you want him as your Savior and Lord? And he said, yes, I do. To which my heart leapt with joy. And then I said, well, I'm glad to know that you want to follow Christ. Now, let me tell you what Christ says about premarital sex and living together before you're married. Your wedding date is a few months away, and what Christ would have you to do would be to quit living together, to move out, and not to have sex until you're married. And he said, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. No way. I already have a daughter with this girl that I'm marrying. What will she think of that? No way. We're already financially tight. We're already. And you see, this is how Jesus can, in one sense, gather big crowds, but then as Christ in all authority turns and says, if you, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, and then the crowds begin to disperse. It's in those types of ways that I say we struggle with the authority of Christ. I'll give you an example in my own life. If I would have been brought to a psychologist when I was a, a child or through junior high or high school. I think they would have diagnosed me with obsessive compulsive disorder. Because what I would do, I, I would worry terribly and it would have deep roots into my life. And I would make up rules that if they were broken, bad things would happen. For example, when I turn on the light in my bedroom, I'd have to do an even number. So I'd always have to do two flicks of the switch. And my grandfather that I never met died of a heart attack when he was 42 years old. And I was always worried that my dad was going to die of a heart attack when he was young. And, and I would lose him. And that was one of the scariest things to me. And so I made up this rule that, you're going to laugh at this, but this is how, what bondage can look like. 
is I knew in high school when he played basketball, his number was 33. So before I would go to bed, I would look over the side of my bed 33 times. And then I would pray that God would help my dad to live to be 99 years or older. But it was a prison that I was in. And what it took to defeat that prison, because now my dad's life is on my shoulders, and you can imagine I did this in other ways that is destructive. And and it wasn't until I realized I'm not in control. Christ is in control. I wrote out my prayer on a piece of paper. God knows it. God knows my prayer for my dad's health. I don't have to be bound in this. And even to this day, when when I must have like tension uh, in my heart, I'll find myself tapping my tooth two times. But what do I think? Christ is Lord. And this is sin. It's not silly because he's going to be king or two light flicks is going to be rule my life. And so we can struggle in many different ways with the authority of Christ. And you have to fight by faith in order to submit to Christ and his authority. So as we... Uh, as I wanted to find one more example from the scripture, in Luke 7, I don't know if you remember the centurion that had a servant that was very ill. And he sent some of the Jewish authorities to Jesus to get help for him. And this is what we read in Luke 7, 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he, that's the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. (laughs) For he loves our nation, and he is one who has built us our synagogue. Now, those of us who understand the depravity of man realize we can't come to God and say, you know, this guy's really a good guy, and he's worthy. In a sense, you owe him this healing. That's how they were thinking. This this man's worthy for you to do this miracle. And we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come underneath my roof. They said, he's worthy to have you come. And he says, no, I'm not even worthy that you are troubled and that you come under my roof. And here's what he says. For I too am a man set under authority 
with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And those who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant well. The man understood the authority of Christ because he had authority over him as a Roman centurion. And Jesus loved what he saw. He marveled at it. And he said, no one in Israel has had this sort of faith. One of the ways we worship Christ is by submitting our life to him. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. The Apostle Paul didn't get a coast to heaven. But he had to die to himself and submit himself under the authority of Christ daily. And so as we come to our text, I want to ask, seek to answer the question that Jesus posed to them. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? Now, I know you probably know the answer to that, but I want you to see it. I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus is doing. And then after we look at and study John's ministry through the center part of this sermon, I want to come back and help you search your own hearts and see how you can submit yourself to Christ in a way that glorifies him in a way that he is worthy of. So you understand the predicament Jesus put them in. They, they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Well, what's he doing? He's standing in the temple and teaching. For three days after he cleared the temple, Jesus controlled the temple. And he preached the gospel out of the temple for three days. He shut down what they were doing. And they come back and the best they got is, who told you you could do this? Where does your authority come from? The fact that he could clear the temple tells us an amazing thing about the authority Jesus commanded in his life. And Jesus asks a question back and puts them in a bind. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He summarizes John's ministry as his baptism that he performed. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? 
But if we say from man, all the people will stone us for they're convinced that John was a prophet. What's Jesus doing? He's walking up on their toes and he's saying, you really want to deal with me? Deal with me. Answer this question. And they wanted to plead the fifth. They wanted to backtrack and go to plan B and think up something else. So as we look a little bit at John's ministry, there's three questions in your notes. Was John's baptism from heaven? Was John's ministry inseparably tied to Jesus's ministry? And then they ask the question, by what authority did Jesus do all that he did? All right? So if we were to go back to Luke chapter 1, in verse 11, this is the account when Zechariah was chosen by Lot to go offer sacrifice. And in verse 11... Here's what happened. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So here's where John comes onto the scene in Luke. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Is John's ministry from heaven or from earth? If we just take this account so far, what would we say? An angel showed up (laughs) and predicted that a barren woman is going to give birth to a son, it's fair to say John's ministry was from heaven. And what he says is he must not drink wine or strong drink. He must be filled with this, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Even points to the fact that this isn't normal. Babies aren't normally filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Does does John's ministry come from heaven or from earth? And we would probably say from heaven in light of this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Was Elijah from God or from this? earth, his message, it was from God, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? Silly question. For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Angels, which are servants of God, this is Gabriel in the presence of God, was sent from God. Was John's ministry from heaven 
or from earth. It was from heaven. And he says, and behold, you'll be silent, not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, that's a miracle, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And then if we were going to go to verse 63 in Luke 1, here's what we would read. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. So, Here's the account where they want to name him John. And everyone's saying, no, he's supposed to be named Zechariah after his father. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, another miracle, and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessing to God. And fear came upon all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. So, the local newspaper was considering these things. And all who heard, who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Where's his ministry from? The hand of the Lord was with him. And then, we have Zechariah's pro prophecy over his life. And his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. Is this a message from Zechariah or from God? He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, that's all about Jesus. And then he says, and you, child, will be called, now he's talking to John, the prophet of the Most High. For you will go and prepare before the Lord, or go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so we asked the question, was John's ministry inseparably tied to Christ's ministry? And we have to say, through Zechariah's prophecy over him, yes. 
For Christ was spoken of first, then he said, and you, child, will prepare the way for him. John's ministry is tied to Christ's ministry. And then in Luke chapter 3, we see John in the midst of his ministry. Beginning in verse 2. During the high priest of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Where's his ministry from? The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Can baptism save anyone? No. John's ministry is not this sideshow over here, and Jesus' ministry is something else. Sometimes people want to make a distinction between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, but John's ministry finds all of its purpose in pointing to Christ. And the only way sins are forgiven are in Christ. And the only way someone comes to Christ is through faith and repentance. And so, in verse 4 it says, as it is written in the book of the words of, the prof, uh, of Isaiah the prophet, and now he's quoting Isaiah the 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, in all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah 40 starts with, comfort, comfort my people. The Lord has provided double for all your sins. There's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. He, what he's going to do, when a king would come, you would make a straight path. You, in a sense, it's this visual. These valleys, which would be hard to cross, are going to be brought up. The mountains are going to be brought low. John's ministry is to make a straight path so people can see Jesus Christ. And then, here's what we read. And he said, therefore, to the crowd, or he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid root to the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, they recognized that John was finally this prophet after 400 years with no prophet in Israel. They recognized John was the prophet and they came for his baptism. And he says, what are you doing here? What are you coming for this baptism? This is a baptism of repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with the repentance, then come to this baptism. Some who believe in reformed infant baptism have a problem here. Because the Jews are coming and they're saying, we're sons of Abraham. And what would they be pointing to? Their circumcision. And what won't John do? 
He won't baptize them. Why? Because they haven't repented. His baptism was tied to repentance from the heart. This system of circumcision, sometimes Reformed Baptists will say, well, there's no place in the New Testament that says, that, that does away with circumcision, so baptism must take over circumcision. Well, I would say the axe laying root to the tree is a good sign that it's going down, and there's a new system in place. And there's a transition at this point in time. And so, the leaders of Israel and many Jews became angry with John, and they rejected him. They were offended that he wouldn't give them, the spiritual people, baptism. And then the crowds asked, what shall they do And he shows them what repentance looks like. Tax collectors, or what does he say? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, What shall we do? He said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John understood his place of authority in comparison to Christ. He said, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, baptism in the Trinity, in the name of Christ, is not separate from John's baptism. It's connected to it because you can't separate their ministries. The difference is this, is baptism of the Spirit comes before the physical representation of the invisible thing that already happened when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. That's something John couldn't do. John couldn't do the work that only God can do in which the Holy Spirit lives inside the temple of your body. And then we read in verse 18, so with many exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Guess what Jesus preached? The good news. Guess what? Their ministries can't be separated from each other. Isaiah connected them. The scripture connects them. John's baptism is from heaven. And it's inseparably tied to Jesus' ministry. Well, I can see we're not going to have time to go through John 1 and John 3, but the surprising thing of John 1 is half that chapter is about John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. He's not the light. He bears witness to the light so that people might believe in him. 
He's not just this sideshow character. Rather, he is God's plan to prepare the way for the Lord to get people's hearts ready for repentance because the people of Israel were ready for the Romans to go down. They were ready for the Messiah to come and bring political peace. And God wanted to prepare their hearts to repent. I do want to go to Matthew 11, though, verse 7. We read, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings, are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, and then he quotes Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came eating and drinking and you say he has a demon. Or he came neither eating or drinking and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, by the fruits of repentance, really. And he says, this is what you're like. You're like a child who plays a song when people are supposed to dance. And no one dances. And then you play a sad song and no one mourns, and you're not happy either way. What don't they like? Jesus shows up and walks all over the authority of their lives as they saw it. In their minds, he was ruining their business. He was ruining their identity as leaders in Israel. Was John's baptism from heaven? It fulfills Isaiah's 40 uh, prophecy. An angel, Gabriel, came and in a vision to Zechariah, Elizabeth, a barren woman, gave birth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. His commanding authority was recognized. All the crowds knew he was from God. And if we would have read the John passage what you would have saw is John said that God told him that whoever the Spirit descends on like a dove is the Messiah. And what does John do? He says, there is a lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. If he just has his own thing over here and Jesus has this own thing, don't worry about decreasing. No, 
They're connected. And when the bridegroom comes, the friend of the bridegroom is satisfied. Ministry fulfilled. I pointed to him. There's the one that takes away the sins of the world. There's the one that's going to go to the cross for sinners. Therefore, the religious leaders who are challenging Jesus' authority stand condemned by God and are shown to be at war against the God of heaven. Which is that exactly what Jesus said they were. He said that their father was the devil. He called them a brood of vipers, children of the snake. He said they filled up the sins of their fathers. He said to them that they would cross both land and water to make a single convert. And then when they did, they made them twice as much the sons of hell as themselves. He said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said that the words he speaks are the Father's words, and you reject my words. He said that they were blind even though they claim to see. Though they were serving God, or though they thought they were serving God, and that God was pleased with them, once they ran into Christ, he exposed their hypocrisy and their need for repentance. And the question I have for you is if John's ministry is from heaven, where's Jesus' ministry from? Heaven. Jesus says, John testified to me, but there's even something greater than John's testimony. Look at all the miracles I've been doing. Who could do that except through God? So since Jesus' authority is from heaven, you need to feel the weight of this because we'll stand before God. If you stand before God outside of Christ, you will die in your sins. Eternal punishment. You say, well, I don't believe God would be that harsh. Well, here's the thing. Our sin is before an eternal God and justice demands proper judgment. And then... There's Christians in this room. Many of you know the Lord. And yet there's parts of your life you've protected rebellion against Him. The way I would when I'd flip the light on. I let another Lord come into my life and start having mastery over me. And so the question is, or the idea is this, since Christ's authority is from heaven, and since he's worthy of all of our submission, he died in your stead place for your sins. He bore the wrath of God for you. He doubly owns you. He created you. And he purchased you. He bought you. He's worthy of your life. So here's the question. How might I more fully surrender my life to Christ? And in what areas of my life do I still see rebellion to Him? Pray about this this week. Pray about it. It might be your thinking. Maybe you have to take your thoughts captive to Christ. Maybe you're being ruled by lies of the worst case scenario 
you run through your mind like I would with worry. Maybe it's obsessive compulsive rules like I had. It could be your emotions. Do you know Philippians 4 commands us to rejoice always? Again, I say rejoice. And then he says, let your reasonableness be made known. (laughs) How is that reasonable? The Lord is at hand. He's here. Do not be anxious about anything. But with everything, with prayer and supplication, make your requests known before God. Every night before we go to bed with my girls, we cast. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Every night, girls, what are you worrying about? Here's what we do. He cares for us. He cares for us. Believe that by faith. Now let's grab that anxiety. Let's name it. Let's throw it up to him. And leave it with him. I can't carry my, the burdens of those worries on my own heart. It could be smoking cigarettes. It could be smoking weed. It could be doing drugs. It could be drinking. It could be eating. An area of your life where you walled off and said, no, Jesus, I'm not letting you in to this area. It could be porn. It could be self-harm. Maybe you say, no, Jesus, your death for my sins wasn't enough. I'm going to harm myself. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to beat myself up. I got to suffer for my own mistakes. Maybe that's how you're rejecting the authority of Christ. It could be in your looking at your phone and screen time. Does this thing just take over? Does this thing control your life? Does it take over authority of your life? Is Jesus worthy of what you do with this phone? Is he? How much is he worthy of? How much can you trust him? How good is he? It could be the stewardship of God's money. It's not your money. It's his money. Does he have authority over his money that he's allowed for you to have stewardship over. It could be stewardship of his time that he's allotted to you to live another day longer. It could be living with your wife in an understanding way. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Is God rejecting your prayers because you're not living with your wife in an understanding way? You don't realize Christ is the head over you, and he has authority, and he hasn't given you authority, husband, to abuse your wife with it. Or even live indifferently to her. Wives, could it be in submitting to your husband, you're in rebellion to Christ? Could it be speaking the truth in love, making the hard phone call? You know you should make the phone call. You know you should have the conversation, but you fear man more than 
honoring Christ. See, it's hard. Christ walks up on us as Lord. It could be having the courage to act upon something that you know you need to do instead of acting in fear. Ephesians 5.20 says this, giving thanks always in everything to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of authority or out of reverence to Christ. You say, how do, how as the church, when we submit to one another, how is that showing reverence to Christ? Well, here's the question. Who builds the church? Christ does. How did Christ say that you're going to be sanctified and grow up to maturity in Ephesians 4? Speaking truth and love were to grow up in every way into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, which with it 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 is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we separate ourselves from the body, we're in rebellion to Christ. And I suppose there could be a million other things, but I share those to help you pray this week and ask God to show you What part of my life am I withholding from you, Christ? Because it's with your lives you worship him. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's when you realize that your whole life is to be an act of worship and to be in submission to Christ. And so, you might say, well, that was really convicting. Well, welcome to the party. It's convicting to me. But we get to do this. We get to grow in holiness as people who've already been forgiven. Who already have the full righteousness of Christ in our stead place. We're not people of fear who are afraid of judgment. Because perfect love in the gospel drives away all fear. So my prayer is is that you would know Christ in that way. That you would submit to him in that way. Father, do this in our lives. Thank you for your word. Father, give us wisdom from your spirit. Lord, I pray there wouldn't be anyone here that rejects the forgiveness offered in Christ. That they would admit their sin, repent of their sin, cling to Christ as their only hope by faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.